1984, actor Johnny Depp landed his first role in a major motion picture. It also happened to be the very first major motion picture for the company New Line Cinema. A Nightmare on Elm Street was such a success at the box office that it spawned a number of sequels that helped bolster New Line Cinema's foothold in Hollywood. Over the next few decades, New Line Cinema had a number of hits. The Mask, Dumb and Dumber, Friday, Austin Powers, way too many Final Destination movies, and many more. It would seem New Line Cinema was making a name for themselves, either making horror movies or comedies. Talk about extremes. In 1995, an aspiring young director was finishing up a horror movie of his own. Or was it a comedy? Well, maybe it was a bit of both. It was material that you'd think would be perfect for New Line Cinema, but it was distributed by Universal Pictures. When The Frighteners was released in 1996, it was Peter Jackson's fifth full-length feature film, not counting the made-for-TV movie that released the year before. Those five movies had a combined budget of about $39 million. $30 million of that was for The Frighteners, which was clearly Peter's biggest budget film to date. That would change, but not right away. It took years, but eventually Peter Jackson managed to find a studio willing to fund his next project. Based on three books, New Line Cinema decided it would be best to stick to the original books and make three movies instead of one like other studios wanted to do. It would end up being simultaneously the most expensive movies New Line Cinema had ever created and the biggest budget films Peter Jackson had ever directed. So with the decision to make three movies instead of one, does that mean they're closer to what actually happened in the books? Let's start at the beginning as we learn just how accurate The Fellowship of the Rings really was. I'm Dan Lefebvre, and this is Based on a True Story. It's time for Two Truths and a Lie. If you're new to the show, here's how it works. I'll share three things. Two of them are true. One of them is a flat-out lie. Listen closely for the answers scattered throughout the episode. Sometimes they're easy to spot, and sometimes they're not so easy. Regardless, at the end of the episode, we'll learn which one is a lie. Okay, here they are. Number one, the movie correctly showed that there were nine in The Fellowship of the Ring. Number two, Gandalf did not instruct a moth to help save him from Saruman. Number three, Bilbo left Bag End, but he never made it to Rivendell. And with that, we have a lot to cover, so on with the show. The movie opens with a voiceover setting up the situation. There's a total of 19 rings. These rings, great rings as they're referred to in the movie, are split up rather unevenly amongst three races of Middle-earth. Men get nine, the elves get three, and seven great rings are given to the dwarf lords. After this, according to the movie, these races realize too late that the Dark Lord Sauron has created yet another ring of his own, the One Ring, the Master Ring that controls all the others. Most of this is accurate, but there's a couple things to point out here. With the imagery in the movie, we can clearly see the elves donning their rings. 
One of the elves is Galadriel, who's played by Kate Blanchett. In the book, though, the elves did not wear their rings as soon as Sauron handed them over, like the movie implies. Instead, they hid their rings, rings of power, as the book calls them. Not only this, but although they did wear them like the movie shows, the control that Sauron had over the rings given to the dwarves did not work as he intended. The nine rings given to the race of men, though, worked. That is why Sauron was able to turn the nine kings of men into Nazgul, or Black Riders, later on. But that's getting a little ahead of our story. After the introduction to the rings, we see a massive battle that takes place. In this battle, according to the movie, Sauron's army clashes with armies from both men and elves just outside the gate of Mordor. That did not happen. In fact, the forces of men and elves made it inside Mordor. They met Sauron's army on the massive mountainside inside Mordor on Mount Doom. While the movie got the location a little bit off, the next part is pretty spot on. Things seem to be going really well for the men and elves. Then, just as victory is in their grasp, Sauron himself appears. In the movie, Sauron, who's covered in armor, is portrayed by Salah Baker. With the power of the One Ring, Sauron lays waste to the men and elves. That happened in the book. But while it might seem like the movie is starting to string together some accuracy, again, it flip-flops and then strays from the book. In the movie, when Sauron faces the founder of the Numenorean kingdom, Elendil, who's played by Peter McKenzie, Sauron slays him and shatters his sword. Then, taking up his father's sword, Isildur, slices off all of Sauron's fingers. The ring falls off and Isidor picks up the ring to stare at it in wonder. According to the movie, that is how Sauron is defeated, but not destroyed. Oh, and Isidor is played by Harry Sinclair in the film, by the way. The overall gist is fairly accurate, but some of the details are quite different. Yes, Elendil was slain by Sauron, and yes, his son Isidor grabbed his father's sword and swung it at Sauron, but he didn't slice off all of his fingers. He only cut off the ring finger, leaving four fingers on one of Sauron's hands. But probably the biggest difference was when Isildur picked up the one ring. According to the book, when Isildur did this, his hand burned horrifically. Not in the movie, where we see Isildur picking it up without any problem. Oh, and in the movie, Sauron practically explodes after losing the ring. That didn't happen. Instead, Without the ring, Sauron decided to leave his body. Although, I guess the book didn't say that he did not explode, but it also doesn't say that he does either. In the movie, after this opening scene, we're whisked away across the map of Middle-earth, about 1,100 miles as the Nazgul flies to the northwest of Mordor to a little region called the Shire. We follow Sir Ian McKellen's character, the wizard Gandalf's small cart, as he arrives in the green, luscious fields of the Shire. A young Frodo, who's played by Elijah Wood, greets Gandalf, and we quickly learn that Gandalf is arriving for Bilbo's 111th birthday celebration. In the film, Bilbo is played by Ian Holm. Just like we learned from the introductory scene, the overall gist is fairly accurate, even though there's a few details that have been changed. Probably the biggest detail is something that hasn't really been changed so much as it's just been completely omitted. And that is simply that both Frodo and Bilbo shared the same birthday. So not only was Gandalf in town for Bilbo's 111th birthday celebration, but also Frodo's 33rd. 
Both Bilbo and Frodo were born on September 22nd. And as a quick side note, each year, September 22nd is celebrated around the world as Hobbit Day. But there's a few other small details that are different. For example, Gandalf never said the line that a wizard is never late in the book, nor did he set off fireworks in his cart to delightful cheers of little Hobbit children, as we see in the movie. Speaking of fireworks, another thing the movie changed was when Mary, who's played by Dominic Monaghan, and Pippin, who's played by Billy Boyd, got into Gandalf's fireworks and set them off. That didn't happen at all. In fact, not only did this not happen, but throughout most of the film, Mary and Pippin don't really seem to be the brightest bulb in the socket, if you know what I mean. In the book, none of that slapstick-style comedy happened. Instead, in the book, Merry and Pippin are pretty smart and very courageous hobbits. Not really what we see in the movie. Back in the movie, though, the One Ring comes into play when Bilbo slips the ring onto his finger during his birthday party. When he does, he simply disappears. Everyone gasps, and Ian McKellen's version of Gandalf raises his eyebrows in surprise. The difference in this little scene was that Gandalf added some effects to Bilbo's disappearance in the book. He did this in an attempt to make it seem more like a magic trick that he was doing so no one else would suspect anything. When Bilbo disappeared, Gandalf magically made a flash of smoke appear. After this, in the movie, Bilbo and Gandalf have a little one-on-one -on -one chat. It takes quite a bit of persuasion, but Gandalf manages to convince Bilbo to let go of the ring. While the exact words used were changed for the film, the overall gist of this is pretty accurate, all the way down to Bilbo nearly taking the ring with him, but then dropping it just before he leaves. Although he didn't drop it on the floor like we see in the movie, in the book, Bilbo put the ring in an envelope along with a will he had already prepared for Frodo. In that will, he was giving Bag End to Frodo instead of the Sackville Bagginses. Anyway, Bilbo dropped the envelope as he says goodbye to Gandalf, and then the wizard, in turn, picks up the envelope and puts it on the mantle. So the method was slightly different, but pretty close. The end result was the same, though. The One Ring was in an envelope on the mantle. Meanwhile, Bilbo left Bag End and the Shire. Although, he didn't leave alone, like the movie shows. Instead, in the book, Bilbo had a couple dwarves as companions. Despite these minor differences, perhaps the biggest inaccuracy here is... With a timeline, soon after Bilbo heads off down the path to adventure, Gandalf leaves the Shire to learn more about Bilbo's ring. The movie doesn't say how much time passes between Bilbo's birthday and when Frodo hits the road. It doesn't really seem to be much time. The only significant event, it seems, is when Gandalf heads off to learn more about Bilbo's magic ring. In the movie, he's going to verify that this is indeed the one ring, Sauron's ring of power. When Gandalf returns from his trip, he's convinced Bilbo has somehow found the One Ring and, in turn, convinces Frodo to set off at once. So even though the movie doesn't say how long has passed, it's pretty safe to say this timeline is way off in the movie. According to the book, the time between Bilbo's birthday party and when Frodo set off was around 17 years. We know this because Frodo was 33 years old when Bilbo left his home at Bag End, by the time Frodo set off from Bag End, he was almost 50. This, of course, begs the question, if about 17 years had passed between the time Gandalf tells Frodo to keep the ring secret and safe and the time that Frodo leaves the safety of the Shire, how long could Gandalf have taken to do his research? After all, the movie does show Gandalf going off and doing what appears to be a quite a bit of research to ensure that Bilbo's ring is indeed the one ring. 
Again, we don't know the exact timing here, but it's highly unlikely the events we see in the film could have taken 17 years. We can deduce this from simple distances, as well as a few things that the movie doesn't show. The weather is getting nicer, which means now is the perfect time to plan ahead for summer fun. Personally, I'm hoping to be able to visit my family this summer, and that means booking flights as soon as possible before the prices go up. And now you can help ensure your money is there when you need it with today's sponsor, Earn In. Just download the Earn In app, verify your paycheck, and watch your earnings tick up as you work. Access up to $100 a day and up to $750 per pay period so you can start making your summer plans now. It's free and easy to get started. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. Bilbo's birthday party was on September 22nd in the first year of the Third Age, or 3001. It wasn't until March 23rd of 3018, just over 16 and a half years later, that Gandalf questioned the creature Gollum about the ring. This played a huge factor into Gandalf's determining the origins of the ring. This questioning lasted for about a week, but on March 29th, Gandalf headed back to the Shire to compare what he'd learned with Bilbo's ring. So when we see Gandalf throwing the ring in the fire and seeing the inscription that appears in the movie, that happened after Gandalf arrived back in the Shire, more specifically Hobbiton, on April 13th. Well, technically, he rolled into town late on the 12th, but he checked the ring the first thing the next day. Now, that timing is interesting because it gives us a bit of insight into how difficult the travel was for Gandalf even then. From March 29th to April 12th is 14 days or two weeks. As the crow flies, where Gandalf questioned Gollum in the swamps of Mirkwood was about 700 miles from the Shire. Of course, Gandalf didn't travel by crow, he used his trusty steed. We know from history that the world record for a horse's speed is 55 miles per hour, or about 88 kilometers per hour. Typically, though, horses gallop at about 25 miles per hour, or 40 kilometers per hour. While normal horses can't go that speed the entire time, this is Gandalf's horse. Although it's worth noting that Gandalf didn't have his glorious white horse, Shadowfax, quite yet. Obviously, they didn't go in a straight line, and we couldn't even go so far as to say that maybe he broke up the trip into a couple of 14-hour days of travel. Still, that's a pretty significant difference between a couple of days of travel and two weeks. So if the trip at full speed would have taken less than a day or even a couple days at an average gallop, we know it took Gandalf a couple of weeks to make it. That gives you an idea of how difficult the road traveled was. Still, even with a tough road, the movie seems to speed up the timeline a lot. The time it takes for Gandalf to do his research on the One Ring certainly doesn't seem to be the 17 years between Bilbo and Frodo leaving Bag End as it was in the book. One major difference here in the book and the movie is the whole backstory of the ring. The movie doesn't include it really at all. In fact, it's not until the third movie, 
The Return of the King that we learn about the history of the One Ring. In the Fellowship of the Ring book, though, we learn about the ring's history very early on. This isn't the only part shifted from around here in the book to later in Peter Jackson's films. Remember that part where Frodo tells Gandalf he wishes this didn't happen in his time? To which Gandalf says, so do all who live to see such times. All we have to decide is what to do with the time given to us. That conversation didn't happen as Frodo and Gandalf were taking a break in the minds of Moria, like we see in the movie. Instead, it actually happened here, before Frodo ever left Bag End. In the movie, as Frodo and Gandalf are talking about the ring, Sam is eavesdropping when he hears of the ring in Frodo's upcoming adventure. This happened, although the movie doesn't mention that Sam was intentionally spying on Frodo and Gandalf for some of Frodo's friends, Merry, Pippin, and another hobbit named Fredinger. Something else the movie doesn't mention is that when Frodo left Bag End, he actually sold it to the Saxville Bagginses. While this may not seem like a big deal to skip, it sort of gives us more insight into Frodo's state of mind. The movie makes it seem like Elijah Wood's version of Frodo Baggins was heading out on an adventure, something he'd return from, much the same hobbit that he was when he left. You don't sell your home when you go on an adventure, though. Since that's exactly what Frodo did, it's safe to say he was not expecting to return from this particular adventure. Anyway, that's a distinction without much of a difference because both the movie and the book have four hobbits leaving the Shire. Meanwhile, as the hobbits leave the Shire, in the movie we see Gandalf racing off to meet with the head of his order, Saruman. Once he gets there, it doesn't take long for us to learn that Saruman isn't the good guy he once was. After a powerful wizarding battle that sees Gandalf the Grey fall to the much more powerful Saruman the White, Gandalf is imprisoned. None of this happened in the book. In fact, none of this came up in the book until much later when Gandalf was with the hobbits at the Council of Elrond in Rivendell. It was there that Gandalf mentioned being imprisoned by Saruman. So while it helped push the drama of the story to see two wizards fight, all of that dialogue was made up for the film. For the hobbits, though, the first stop, according to the movie, is Bree. There, they'll meet with Gandalf. That's a pretty big change here, too, but we'll get to that in a moment. In the book, they weren't planning on meeting Gandalf there, but it was a place that Gandalf mentioned to the hobbits as a good place to stop if they happened to be near Bree. Geographically, Bree is right along the East Road, heading out of the Shire, so it's a natural place for travelers to stop and rest their weary feet. Back in the movie, before long, the four hobbits find they're being followed. In a terrifying turn of events, black riders chase the hobbits to the ferry, nearly catching them as they shove off across the river. While the Black Riders did show up in the book at this point, the chase was hyped up quite a bit for the film. It wasn't until the hobbits were partway across the river when they looked back at the dock that they just left and noticed an odd-looking bundle. That's when they realized it wasn't a bundle at all. It was a Black Rider. Although the hobbits almost certainly didn't know the full extent of who the Black Riders were, just like the movie shows, they knew they didn't want to get caught by them. The river we see the four hobbits cross on the ferry in the movie is the Brandywine River. We know this because, well, geographically in Middle-earth, but also because after Frodo asks where the nearest crossing is, the reply comes back, the Brandywine Bridge, going across the Brandywine River. The next scene where we see the hobbits in the movie is when they're in Bree. So a little bit ago, I mentioned there was a big difference between the book and the movie right around here. 
It's actually a huge chunk of the book that was completely omitted from the movie. To add a bit of context here, the hobbits are traveling from the Shire, which is far west in Middle-earth, to the east. Just to the east of the Brandywine River, there's a huge forest called the Old Forest. It was in here that the four hobbits ran into a living tree named Old Man Willow. The hobbits were ensnared by Old Man Willow, and their trip likely would have been cut short if it weren't for a character named Tom Bombadil. Tom rescued the hobbits from Old Man Willow and gave the hobbits food and shelter in his home, which is in the thick of the old forest. None of this happened in the movie, and it's probably one of the biggest gripes that many people had with the film when it was released. Tom was such a lovable character in the book, so if this is the first time you're hearing his name, you'd be doing yourself a favor to go back and read The Fellowship of the Ring to learn more about this part of the story. When you do, you'll also get to read about the Hobbit's trip to Freddy Bulger's house at Crick Hollow and the zombie-like wraith creatures called Barrow Whites that they encounter in the Barrow Downs. Although it's worth mentioning that one of the Hobbits that Ian Holmes' version of Bilbo says hello to in the movie's depiction of Bilbo's birthday party at the beginning of the movie is Freddy Bulger. Anyway, back in the movie, when the Hobbits arrive in Bree, it seems to be a very scary place. Oh, and we even get to see the director, Peter Jackson, munching on a carrot for a brief moment. That's not really what it was like. According to the book, it was a nice enough evening that Mary decided to take a stroll in town after they arrived. Once they're in Bree, as you can probably guess, there's a number of differences between the movie and the book. One of the changes was when Pippin says Frodo's real last name, Baggins, and Frodo rushes over to try to silence him. As he does in the movie, he slips and falls. The ring flies into the air, sliding precariously well onto Frodo's finger, making him disappear. In the book, Pippin was recounting the tale of Bilbo's party to patrons of the Prancing Pony and Bree. As he does, Frodo jumped up on the table and started singing a song. As a side note, there's a lot more songs in the book than in the movie. Anyway, one of the songs that Frodo sings is The Cow Jumped Over the Moon. As he was mimicking the cow jumping over said moon, Frodo slipped and his finger slipped into his pocket and into the ring. Another difference occurs later that evening when the ranger, known as Strider, helps the hobbits hide from the Black Riders. In the movie, Strider is looking through the window as the Black Riders stab empty beds. In the book, there was an attack, but the hobbits didn't know about it until the next morning. And it was never clearly the Black Riders who were the cause of the attack, because according to Strider, the Black Riders would not attack the inn. Probably the biggest change in the movie that was made was with the Shards of Narsil. In the movie, we don't see these until Sean Bean's character, Boromir, cuts himself on the Shards in Rivendell much later. While the movie correctly mentions the Shards are the remains of the sword that Isildur used to cut the hands of Sauron, in the book, though, Strider carries the shards with him at all times. He showed these to Sam to prove he was Aragorn and someone that they could trust. But a more prominent reason why the hobbits trust Strider was because of a letter from Gandalf. In the movie, the bartender at the Prancing Pony is a man named Butterbur, who's played by David Weatherly. Well, we don't really learn his name in the movie, but that was the character's name in the book. In the movie, when the hobbits ask about Gandalf, 
Butterbur appears to only vaguely remember who the wizard is. In the book, though, Butterbur and Gandalf are friends, and anticipating that the hobbits might stop by Bree, Gandalf had written a letter for the hobbits and had it delivered to Butterbur. In the letter, Gandalf told the hobbits that they could trust Aragorn. Then, after seeing the shards of Narsil, to verify that the ranger known as Strider was in fact Aragorn, the hobbits knew that they could trust him. And yes, Strider was one of the fake names Aragorn went by in the book. Back in the movie, after leaving Bree, the hobbits are beset on by the Black Riders when they reach an old watchtower that Aragorn refers to as Amansul. It's here in the movie that the Black Riders get the jump on the hobbits. Although in the movie, the four hobbits are on top of Amansul when it happens. Oh, and as a quick side note, the movie correctly mentions that the Black Riders are the Nazgul or the Nine Kings that we learned about earlier. Although the movie doesn't mention another name for Amansul, and that's Weathertop. So if you if you hear the term Weathertop, that's Amansul. They're basically the same thing, just a different name. Anyway, while the hobbits were attacked by the Nazgul at Amansul or Weathertop, it happened a little bit differently than the way the movie depicts. It was further down the hill, not at the top like the movie shows. Two of the Nazgul stayed at the bottom of Amansul probably so as to cut off any escape for the hobbits, then three of them advanced on the hobbits. When Frodo drew his sword, two of the Nazgul drew back. That's when one of them, armed with both a knife and a sword, not just the sword like the movie shows, lunged forward and stabbed Frodo with the knife. After this, in the movie, Aragorn shows up and fights off the Nazgul. It's pretty heroic, and while Aragorn did show up with a flame after Frodo was stabbed, he didn't have to fight off the Nazgul. They fled without a sword fight. Regardless, the result is the same. Frodo was stabbed and in bad shape. The film cuts away briefly to show Saruman in Isengard. He's ordering orcs to chop down the trees and start building something. These scenes are probably some of the more eye-opening of what many have considered a hidden message behind the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy. You see, J.R.R. Tolkien was a soldier during the horrific trench warfare of the Great War, World War I. He saw firsthand the devastation of nature replaced by the industrial complexes of man. While he never admitted that there was a parallel between nature being destroyed and the replacement of machinery in Isengard, that's a few dots that many people have connected. Anyway, it's during this time that we see Saruman hatching something new. In the mud, a new type of creature arises. The book didn't have these creatures emerging from the mud like the movie shows, but the creatures did exist. They're called Urukai, and they're some of the more brutal creatures in all of Middle-earth. It's probably worth noting that there wasn't a main Urukai leader like the filmmakers made with the character of Lurtz. He's the big bad Urukai that we see quite a bit of. It seems the filmmakers wanted to characterize the Urukai as a whole, so they did that with Lurtz. Oh, and Lurtz is played by Lawrence McCoyer. Around here, in the movie, we also see Gandalf. He escapes Saruman's capture by commanding a moth, which flies off. Later, we see Gandalf hop a ride on a huge eagle. The eagle saves him from Saruman's tower, and while the movie doesn't show them landing, it's safe to assume that's how the movie's version has Gandalf arriving at Rivendell. 
that's not what happened. The movie doesn't mention the eagle's name, but his name was Guahir, and he was the lord of the eagles. It wasn't a moth under Gandalf's command that summoned Guahir. Instead, it was another wizard and part of the same order, Radagast the Brown, that sent Guahir to Isengard with a message for both Gandalf and Saruman. Radagast is a character that's not in any of the Lord of the Rings movies, but we do see him in the Hobbit movies where he's played by Sylvester McCoy. In the books, Radagast has a special power over animals, which is why he's able to somewhat control Guahir. I say somewhat because in the books, the eagles are fickle creatures. They're not really fond of being messengers or doing the bidding of others. So the fact that Radagast used them to deliver a message must have meant the message was one of great importance. But the message was never delivered. Before he landed, Wahir saw Gandalf trapped on top of the tower and rescued him. The eagles might have been fickle creatures, but they weren't evil. In the movie, Back with the Hobbits, Aragorn rushes to try to get an injured Frodo to the house of Elrond in Rivendell for help. Sam mentions that six days away, there's no way that they'll make it. So let's do a little math here, just to compare. Elmensul is about 248 miles or 399 kilometers from Rivendell. There's 24 hours in a day, six days, so that's 144 hours. That would mean Aragorn and the Hobbits would travel about 1.7 miles per hour to get there in six days. Easily doable, right? Well, that's six days if they're traveling 24 hours a day. That's why this is kind of tough to do anything but estimate. But you remember, Frodo is critically wounded, so that'll slow them down. They're tough little Hobbits, so let's give them the benefit of the doubt and say that they can travel for a solid eight hours per day. The movie claims it's six days away, so 48 into 248, that means they'd travel for a little over five miles per hour or about eight kilometers per hour. That sounds doable, right? To get some context here, Usain Bolt is considered by many to be the fastest man alive, maybe ever, with a total of 28 medals, including 11 world championships and eight Olympic gold medals. Usain Bolt's fastest speed was 27.44 miles per hour. That's just over 44 kilometers per hour. Perhaps it's a bit silly to compare the traveling speed of one man, three healthy hobbits and one injured hobbit with the fastest man in the world, though. Generally speaking, the average walking speed for the average person is roughly 2.8 miles per hour or about 4.5 kilometers per hour. So can that one man, three healthy hobbits and one injured hobbit do a measly five miles per hour? Eh, Probably not. So it would seem that Sean Astin's version of Sam has a reason to disbelieve that the trip ahead is possible. Fortunately, in the movie, they don't have to walk all the way to Rivendell. They happen across Arwen, who's played by Errol Smith's lead singer's daughter, Liv Tyler. Or, more accurately, Arwen happens across them in the movie. With haste, Arwen carries Frodo on her horse as they race for Rivendell. Along the way, according to the movie, Arwen is swarmed by the Black Riders, They almost get Frodo a couple times, and then, for some reason, Arwen decides to stop running in the middle of a shallow stream. As the Black Riders advance, Arwen mutters something to the river, which responds by rising. Then, a sudden wave comes, and with horses made of water in the wave, come crashing down on the Black Riders, washing them away. Oh, and as a side note, in the movie, Arwen seems to be very heroic when one of the Black Riders approaches and grovels out a command to the give up the halfling. Arwen's reply was very heroic as she taunts the Nazgul, if you want him, 
come and claim him. Simply put, that didn't happen. The actual story, according to the book, was very different. Let's start with Arwen. She wasn't there. <laughs> Instead, Aragorn and the hobbits happened upon an elf lord named Glorfindel. But it wasn't Glorfindel who carried Frodo to Rivendell. When the Black Riders were closing in, Glorfindel put Frodo on his horse, Asphaloth, alone. So it was Frodo on the horse, alone, who raced across the river. In the book, Frodo was the heroic-sounding one who defied the Black Riders. He declared to the Black Riders that they shall have neither the ring nor him. Then, the wave of water we saw in the movie happened, but it was Elrond, who was in Rivendell, that unleashed a flood that washed away the Black Riders. The shape of the horses were added by Gandalf for a bit of magical flair. Hey, he's a wizard. He does things in style. In the movie, the next scene we see is when Frodo awakens in Rivendell. Gandalf is sitting by his bedside and tells him it's 10 o'clock in the morning on October the 24th. That timing is right. On October 24th is when the book says Frodo awoke in Rivendell, apparently recovered from his wound. Not fully recovered. The movie is correct when it says he'd never fully recover, but in a much better state. It's here in the movie that Gandalf and Elrond have a somewhat lengthy discussion about the One Ring. After a lot of explanations that are helpful to the viewer, Elrond explains that the ring can't stay in Rivendell. They have to decide what to do with it. While the movie doesn't come out and say it, the implication here is that this is the reason to have a council to discuss what to do with the ring. Simply put, that whole scene never happened in the book. Gandalf and Elrond both knew the only way to finish the quest was to destroy the ring. The only way to destroy the ring was to throw it into the same fires that forged it in the fires of Mount Doom in Mordor. So there wasn't any sort of thought that the ring would stay in Rivendell. In the movie, this is when the Council of Elrond is convened. If I may interject a personal note here, the Council of Elrond is a part of the film that I've heard a lot of people complain about as being long and boring. In the book, it's much longer. And again, with my personal note, it's awesome. Remember, it's here in the book that Gandalf explains his capture by Saruman. He goes on for a long time about past events, and we learn a ton. Some are the things that the movie shows Gandalf and Elrond talking about earlier, but there's a lot more that the movie doesn't show. In the movie, it's here at the Council of Elrond that we're introduced to a few new characters. Some of the prominent characters are Sean Bean's version of Boromir, who we mentioned earlier when we learned about the Shards of Narsil, along with Gimli and Legolas. Gimli is played by John Rhys Davies, and Legolas is played by Orlando Bloom. Oh, and in the book, Bilbo attends the council. In the movie, he's not there. As with many of the other portions of the movie, there's a few things here that don't match up with the book. For example, in the book, Boromir had a dream about the Shards of Narsil. In the dream, according to the book, Boromir couldn't really understand much. It was confusing. But in the dream, the name Imladris was mentioned. Imladris is another name for Rivendell. So Boromir felt the need to travel to Rivendell to see if he could find out more about the dream. Boromir didn't know the exact location of Rivendell, though. He left from Minas Tirith, and it took him 110 days to find it. That was the whole reason Boromir came to Rivendell in the book. He was called into the council because he was there, not because he traveled across the lands just for the meeting.
Another inaccuracy in the film happens when the dwarf, Gimli, swings his axe at the One Ring in the middle of the council. That's wrong. First, the One Ring wasn't sitting in the middle of the council. Frodo kept it hidden away in his pocket until he was asked to show it to the council, and when he did, it was just for a brief moment before he stowed it back in his pocket. So as you can probably guess, if the ring was in Frodo's pocket, Gimli didn't swing his axe at Frodo's pocket in an attempt to destroy it. In fact, Gimli didn't make any sort of attempts to destroy the ring at all. It would seem that this was done in the film just so Elrond could reinforce that the ring could not be destroyed by any other means than by casting it into the fires of Mount Doom in Mordor. As the council is coming to an end in the movie, the Fellowship of the Ring is formed. It includes Frodo, Gandalf, Aragorn, Boromir, Gimli, and Legolas. The movie is sort of correct here. Those characters were a part of the Fellowship, but they weren't all chosen at the council like this. In the movie, Sean Astin's version of Sam jumps out from behind a bush to declare that he's going wherever Frodo goes. Soon after, Merry and Pippin burst from their hiding spots. That's not how it happened. In the book, Sam was in the council from the beginning, while Merry and Pippin didn't show up at all. It wasn't until a few days later that Merry and Pippin asked to join the Fellowship. Anyway, the end result is correct. The Fellowship of the Ring consisted of nine members. There were the Hobbits, Frodo, Sam, Merry, and Pippin. Then there was Legolas the Elf, Gimli the Dwarf, Gandalf the Grey, and, from the race of men, Aragorn and Boromir. These nine set off from Rivendell, bound for Mordor. There's a brief voiceover from Ian McKellen's version of Gandalf that explains their course is to stay west of the Misty Mountains until they hit the Gap of Rohan. Then it's east to Mordor. That geographically is correct, and if you haven't yet, I'd highly recommend checking out a map of Middle-earth to see the path that they took. Rivendell is tucked away between the Troll Shawls and the Misty Mountains. Far to the south is the Gap of Rohan, which is a break in the Misty Mountains. Isengard is near the Gap of Rohan, as is Helm Deep, and just on the other side, Fangorn Forest. Anyway, we're getting ahead of ourselves. I'll put a link to a map of Middle-earth in the show notes so you can see where everything is located. In the movie, Gimli suggests passing through the mines of Moria instead of going all the way south to the Gap of Rohan. Gandalf dismisses this, suggesting it's a more perilous route. Which, of course, in true Hollywood fashion, means that's the route they're going to end up taking— this happens in the movie after Saruman casts a spell that causes a terrible storm in the Misty Mountains and forces the Fellowship to turn back. This is all fairly accurate, but the book never mentions that it was Saruman who caused the storm. Boromir wondered if it might be the work of the enemy, but there's not really any suggestion that it was a magically induced storm. But the result is the same. The Fellowship ended up having to travel through the mines of Moria. It's here in the movie, while they're trying to figure out how to get into Moria, that the entire Fellowship gets attacked by some sort of kraken-like creature in the waters. It grasps Frodo, nearly dragging him under in the cold black waters. This was the Watcher in the water, and while the attack did happen in the book, it only took Sam slashing a tentacle with his knife to get the Watcher to release Frodo. Although the movie correctly shows Sam's horse as being one named Bill, but Bill didn't get calmly let go like the movie shows. When the Watcher in the water attacked, Bill got scared and he fled. So there's a slight difference there. 
In the movie, when the Fellowship enters Moria, they've walked into a tomb. It's no longer the Dwarven stronghold it once was. That's accurate, although the events we see inside Moria in the film are a bit different than the book. One of those differences was something we already talked about. Remember that part where Frodo tells Gandalf he wishes this didn't happen in his time, to which Gandalf replies, so do all who live to see such times? As we learned earlier, that happened a while ago in the book. Another difference that happened was in Balin's tomb. In the movie, it's while Gandalf is reading the account of what happened to Moria from an old dusty book that appears to be Balin's journal, when Pippin accidentally knocks a skull down a nearby well. Then, an even worse fate as the skull is attached to the entire skeleton, chains and a bucket that follows. The noise awakens the sound of drums. Orcs. Ian McKellen's version of Gandalf scolds Billy Boy's version of Pippin. Full of a took, Gandalf says, referencing Pippin's last name. That's not how it happened. Actually, it was almost completely opposite. Gandalf didn't scold Pippin. Pippin dropped a rock down the well on purpose, and it wasn't in Balin's tomb. After this noise, they did hear what sounded like something tapping in the distance. Was it drums? Hard to tell. Gandalf offered Pippin the first watch as reward, not as a punishment. It wasn't until a couple days later when the Fellowship reached Balin's tomb that they were attacked by orcs. In the movie, when the attack happens, there's a massive cave troll, along with a horde of orcs that attack. The movie focuses on the cave troll as the main villain as it chases Frodo around Balin's tomb. Again, that's not accurate. There was a cave troll, but it barely managed to get its foot in the door when Frodo stabbed his sword, Sting, into the troll's foot. It jumped back and the Fellowship fled Balin's tomb. There was an orc chieftain who fought the Fellowship, though. But instead of Legolas killing the cave troll with an arrow to the throat, like we see in the film, it was Aragorn killing the orc chieftain by chopping its head in two. After this scene in the movie, the orcs flee when they hear something coming. It's dark in Moria. Then a light comes from the distance. Ian McKellen's Gandalf closes his eyes. Then, slowly, they open. It's a Balrog, a demon of the ancient world. Run! This happened, although the book had the appearance of the Balrog be a little different. It was a break in the stone that orcs were trying to bridge to get to the Fellowship when the Balrog appeared. Oh, and the scene where Orlando Bloom's version of Legolas grabs Gimli by the beard? <laughs> that didn't happen. But Gandalf's fight with the Balrog did. Well, except for the whole, you shall not pass phrase. Instead, Gandalf said something more to the effect of, you cannot pass. Close, but different. After finding their way out of Moria in the movie, the Fellowship gets caught up with elves. Among these are Kate Blanchett's character, Galadriel. This happened, although there's a few differences here too. There's a moment in the movie when Frodo looks into the mirror of Galadriel and sees the Shire being destroyed by fire. In the book, both Frodo and Sam were walking in the woods when Galadriel led them to the mirror. It was Sam who looked in first and saw the events, not Frodo. Another change the filmmakers made was when Elijah Wood's version of Frodo took the One Ring off his necklace and hands it to Kate Blanchett's Galadriel. In the book, 
Frodo offered the ring to Gladriel because it was too great for him to bear, but he never actually took the ring out and handed it to her. It was words only. After the Fellowship leaves Galadriel's care, tragedy strikes in the movie when Sean Bean's version of Boromir dies at the hand of the Uruk-hai Captain Lurtz. This moment in the film is extremely sad, but it's played up quite a bit for the movie. In the books, Boromir's death was something that didn't happen until the beginning of the next book, The Two Towers. We don't know the specifics of what happened, but the filmmakers did a pretty good job of trying to keep the gist of the story in place here. After Boromir dies in the film, that's where Frodo leaves the Fellowship. He heads off with Sam to Mordor, while the rest of the Fellowship tries to distract the hordes from Mordor. That happened, but with the end of the movie comes the end of our tale today because, well, this is where the book ends as well. We'll continue the story someday. This episode of Based on a True Story was written and produced by me, Dan LeFebvre. There's so much more we didn't cover that the film differed from the book. If you haven't read The Fellowship of the Ring, go do it now. I'll include a link in the show notes. Before we get to the two truths and a lie game, let's take a look at another five-star review from iTunes. This one comes from Stuart96782, who says, quote, This retired librarian appreciates the amount of research that goes into each podcast to compare the real story to the movie plot. I especially like the way everything is explained in a short period of time. No fillers, no chats, nothing extraneous. The amount of detail is superb. I'm glad I found this podcast. Keep up the excellent work. End quote. Wow, so awesome. Thank you so much. I sort of feel bad now. I hate to break it to you, but, well, this episode really wasn't a short period of time. We went a little long. Sorry. Oh, and I don't know if you know this or not, but this entire episode might be seen as a little bit extraneous. Why? Well, the whole story from The Fellowship of the Ring let you in a little secret. It's not real. You might have noticed this episode wasn't released on a Monday morning like we usually do either. So, April Fools! But seriously, thank you so much for the kind words, Stuart96782. If you want to leave a five-star review for me to read in the future, hop over to iTunes. Finally, it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. As a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one. The movie correctly showed that there were nine in the Fellowship of the Ring. Number two, Gandalf did not instruct a moth to help save him from Saruman. Number three, Bilbo left Bag End, but he never made it to Rivendell. Did you find out which one is a lie? The lie is number three. We know Bilbo made it to Rivendell because he was part of the Council of Elrond, Although the movie doesn't show Bilbo in the council, Bilbo is a part of the council in the book, and in the movie, we do see Bilbo in Rivendell, though. So, I know, right now, you're probably wondering, this whole episode is an April Fool's joke? Yep, it is. Sorry. But it's Lord of the Rings, so it's okay, right? Even though this wasn't an actual true story, I really hope you enjoyed it. Do you want to hear the other two books in the Lord of the Rings trilogy at some point in the future? Let me know in the Based on a True Story podcast Facebook group, or you can tweet at me where I'm at Dan Lefebvre, D-A-N-L-E-F-E-B, or 
maybe you're not a fan of social media, you can shoot me a good old-fashioned email at dan at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Now, because this episode is releasing on April Fool's Day, which is not a part of our regularly scheduled program, you can expect an actual true story episode to drop on Monday in just a couple of days. So until then, thanks again for listening, and we'll chat again soon.